Welcome to season two of Sea Salt and Parm. I'm Michaela from the Millennial Outside, a teller of stories, a lover of food, a wanderer of wild places, and a wearer of many hats. This is me sharing the simple things in life that I find extraordinary. Can I tell you a story? I learned to operate the Mr. Coffee before the dishwasher or the washing machine or the vacuum. I'd pull a chair over to the counter and fill the paper filter with grounds, the craft with water. I'd watch patiently as the coffee began drip, drip, dripping into the pot and wait until the light turned off, the acrid smell of coffee filling the kitchen. By the time I made it up the stairs to my parents' bedroom, a third of the coffee was on the carpet, but I'd proudly present the damp mug over the sound of the morning news. That was back in the day when Starbucks was looked upon as the epitome of coffee culture, and my sister and I would go on coffee dates with my mom and her friends and drink a strawberry cream frappuccino, split into two cups while weaving the wooden stir sticks into interesting shapes. Over the last 11 years, I'm sure I've drank over 4,000 cups of coffee. Probably closer to 8,000, because many days, I'll have two. My dad, who's 61, has probably drank close to 40,000 cups of coffee in his lifetime. As I'm sure you can guess, I'm not a fan of the give-up caffeine movement in health spaces. For one, moderate caffeine, specifically coffee consumption, has been shown to have positive health benefits. But I'm not a doctor, and to be honest, I don't really care about the health of it. Coffee is sacred, and no amount of mushrooms will ever be able to replicate it. When I usually sit down to write these pieces, a handful of specific memories will come to me. For when I think of coffee, it's a floodgate. Picking out my favorite coffee memories is like picking out my favorite memories of my husband. They're so intrinsically linked to my world, it's hard not to get carried away. From my first cups of coffee late at night at Village Inn with a ragtag group of community college thespians, to intricate lattes at my favorite coffee shops, to many a cup of coffee brewed at home, thousands of pictures float through my mind. I've drank coffee out of to-go mugs at 3 a.m., driving a van full of senior citizens to photograph the Milky Way, and I've drank coffee out of vending machines in foreign train stations, the cans heated inside the machine. A perfect cappuccino, unexpectedly adorned with a flower drawn out of chocolate sauce in a gas station in Italy, and coffee spiked with Baileys made on a backpacking stove while snowshoeing. I think maybe every cup of coffee I've ever had has in some way shaped me, imprinted on me. The summer I turned 22, we lived out of our Subaru. Van life was just starting to be cool, but we didn't have a van, so we packed up everything we need for the summer, and some things we didn't, like an entire Rubbermaid bin full of canned food. What, like the grocery stores in rural Montana weren't going to have black beans? Into our 98 legacy with an overheating problem. I was so excited for the new and the different and the adventure that I didn't ever stop to think how the scary and the bad and the just different might feel. The new places and the stunning sunsets and the capital A adventures were epic, but one of the things I most remember bringing me joy on that trip was making coffee and drinking it outside. It was a process. When the sun would stream through the car windows or the tent walls and Topher would bury his face under his sleeping bag, Kenzie Dog and I would set about making coffee. We'd set up the camp table, unfold the stove, and screw the propane on. We'd fill a pot with water from our perennially leaky jugs and start the gas with a comforting hiss, watching as the bubbles started to loosen themselves from the bottom of the ancient, scratched pot. I don't remember what kind of shitty coffee we drank back then, but in would the grounds go to the French press which we broke somewhere in Washington and replaced with a plastic one, followed by barely boiling water under birdsong. 
I'd brush my teeth while it steeped, and Kenzie would chew a stick or chase a squirrel. I'd rescue a soggy carton of half and half from the cooler, watching as the coffee steamed in the crisp mountain air. Some days, the credit card didn't work in Canada, or the radiator blew its cap, or it was 95 degrees at midnight, or we couldn't find a single place to camp, and it was scary and frustrating and overwhelming, and sometimes even the big beautiful things were overwhelming. But always, there was this ritual of making coffee. I'd sit in a camp chair and survey the woods for grizzlies, or the highway, or the river, or wherever we were camped, and I'd drink my coffee out of my tin cup, that was already making it cold, and share the last dregs of it with the dog, and it was this consistent moment of joy. That was the first time I really thought about coffee that way. There's a Swedish concept called fika, which basically boils down to the practice of making time for coffee and fellowship each day. That daily spark of joy is so vital. When there is coffee, there is literally always a reason to get out of bed. A day is never 100% terrible if there's a little moment of coffee joy in there. While I'm an introvert, and I'd just as soon take my coffee alone in the woods over a camp stove as with other people, I can't ignore the fellowship portion of Fika. Coffee unites us, and that's beautiful. When I think about the people I've drank coffee with, I think of iced coffee with my sister from another mister on the concrete stoop while painting our nails and listening to downtown fiction. I think about hitting three coffee shops before noon with my dear friend, with whom my love of coffee was born in college, in Washington, D.C., and having to make a Trader Joe's stop for emergency charcuterie to keep from shaking from over-caffeination. I think of bonding with my mother-in-law-to-be early in the morning in our shared condo as she taught me how to dump the individual hotel coffee filter bags and fill them with the good stuff. I think of Dodge and Bourbon Street's ever-present morning hoses with my dad to wait in line with the least hungover visitors to the French Quarter to caffeinate, or making coffee on the camp stove in the back of his Jeep while he fished in Montana after trying every coffee shop in the tiny town of West Yellowstone, none of which were open. Coffee joy alone in the desert, watching the world wake up. Coffee joy shared with a friend at a favorite local shop. Coffee joy shared with strangers in line at an airport. Coffee joy is universal. While we had our fair share of coffee adventures growing up, on the hunt for drinkable coffee after my parents took one whiff of a relative's hazelnut-flavored beans, I have to admit that while quality is a major plus, for me, it still sparks joy even if it's shitty. I'll make hotel coffee with powdered creamer, even though I know it'll suck. I know I can almost always find something more drinkable later, or, at the very least, caffeinate properly with a gas station Red Bull. There's just something about watching hot liquid pour into a cup, wrapping your hands around it, inhaling deeply, and knowing that even when pandemics hit, and fires burn, and icebergs melt, and anxiety looms, there are still moments of joy to be found every single day. When I was in college, we went to Costa Rica. We took a guided tour through the rainforest with this man who knew more about birds than I thought possible for one human. By sound, he could identify every single call we heard. My next segment is on Canadian geese. This would, obviously, make a great soundbite for my ad break turn nature break, but as I listened to every single royalty-free recording of geese online, I realized that maybe knowing the sounds of the birds you grew up with isn't that weird. For some reason, most sound websites are European or Australian, and their geese do not sound like the ones in my backyard. After spending an hour listening to many a goose call, along with some accidental SoundCloud tracks by a rapper named Canadian Goose, I gave up, and instead did my own recording of me making coffee. If you're really curious about Canadian geese, 
YouTube it. Enjoy the next minute. The geese are back. Their bodies are dark, V-shaped smudges on the horizon as night creeps in earlier and earlier, staining the sky with muted pinks and blues. The snows are late. I worry about this, but can't help reveling in this long autumn, watching the season unfold all in its own time. The leaves change, unhurriedly, their descent to the ground laborious and not rushed by impending freezes and flurries. The light is long and golden and thick, like honey filling my vision. I sit amongst the brittle leaves in the sunshine, soaking up the last days before the clock turns back and all the daylight hours are suddenly consumed with emails and deadlines and work. The grass is still green, but it too is dying. The sprinklers have long been turned off. Its texture is coarse and prickly. The geese circle the retention pond. It smells so noxious when the weather warms that the sidewalk around it feels like a joke, as if this were a serene lake, not a pit where the runoff from the streets end up. They circle once, twice, three times before their wings pull back and their awkward feet jut out, hitting the murky water with a splash. I wonder if they too are contemplating the lack of snow. Such strange creatures, geese. Their spindly legs, their round bodies, their perfect coloring that never seems to differ. Sleek black necks, brown backs, white bellies, and patches around their cheeks. Everything about them is strange and alien and tiresome. The way they dip their beaks to drink, the way their bodies cut a V in the water, their incessant honking and anxious movement as one when I climb the hill to peer at them. The air is still and silent, save for the rattle of a few stubborn leaves, hanging on tightly, waiting for a good gust to loosen their grip. The rest of the birds have flown south. The insects have all died in the frosty nights. Except, of course, the honking. They almost went extinct, and yet their bodies crowd this tiny pond. They love our manicured perfection. Drainage ponds and sprawling lawns, and naive mothers with loaves of stale bread and toddlers, at which the angry geese will charge when the bread bag is empty. I wonder if they notice the lack of snow, or the empty, gravel lot adorned with a few dirty white flags, marking what was once natural gas wells. The brand new caps seem so small to hold the innards of the earth, to keep the world from turning itself inside out, the white plastic glaring angrily against gray rock. I drive to the library every week, 
watching as the trees go from green to golden to brown to bare. It's next to a pizzeria I used to work at nearly a decade ago now. The name is different. I marvel at how things can both change so thoroughly and yet remain the same. The streets look as they did a decade ago, for the most part. The same houses, the same trees, the same stock guy at Sprouts with the dreadlocks. He was a regular. Small cheese pizza, every time. Yet, everything is different. Loved ones have been lost and gained. Who I am as a person has grown and changed and adapted and evolved. The whole world has changed. I don't need to tell you that. The heavy equipment disappeared practically overnight. Where there was once fences and eerie pumps shaped like sinister crayons, now there is nothing. The cornfields the geese used to land in are now subdivisions in the making, bulldozers belching clouds of black smoke into the blue skies. I wonder if they noticed. As I wait for the snows to come, refreshing my weather app, running outside like a crazed toddler at the first deceptive flakes turned to rain within a heartbeat, I'm acutely aware of this long season of change. The world is so different, and I am so different. Goose poop lines the sidewalks, green and wet and unavoidable. There are so many of them now. This pond and that pond and the pond in the park and the water feature outside the office. They thrive as we thrive. The tents cover the sidewalks downtown, spilling into parking lots and side streets and alleys. The geese were supposed to feed the homeless. Two birds, one stone, literally. But there was uproar. No one likes the geese. No one likes people starving in the streets. But no one likes the idea of killing the geese. So they keep circling, 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 flapping their wings in annoyance as I sit here watching them. They will not be eaten this year. I don't know where the geese go in the winter. To poop on someone's sidewalk in Tucson, probably. They will return in the spring, along with the leaves. And maybe that's the funny thing about change. Everything changes, but everything also stays the same. The snows will come, though climate change brings them late. It will be summer again before we know it. These streets will be mostly the same in another decade. It's oddly comforting. The world goes on as we wait for snow. If you like sea salt and parm, please rate, subscribe, share, and all those things professional podcasters ask you to do. For real, though, these things all help this little project of mine get in front of more eyes. Thanks for taking the time to do it. You can find me on Instagram at themillennialoutside and at seasaltandparm for podcast updates. Good luck spelling millennial.